for today. As far as introductory matters go, I would like to only look at the overall structure that James emphasizes in his book, the over, overall structure that he provides. And most books in Scripture, whether they're Old or New Testament, have a particular literary structure or framework that they follow. And the book of James is no different. It is built on an antithetical structure, which means that James is addressing a variety of issues in light of their opposites. If you've read the book of James before, you probably already know at least somewhat of this. But the main theme of contrast that James has in his book is between mature faith and those of weak faith. Notice the contrast themes as we just briefly overview the first chapter of the book of James. I'll make reference to the verse, and then I will show you what James is contrasting in that verse. Verse 1-2, the mature have joy in the midst of trials. The contrast, the weak, will not have joy. Verse 5, the mature ask for wisdom when enduring trials. The weak do not ask. Verse 6, the mature do not doubt in prayer. The weak doubt in prayer. Verse 9, the mature will find glory in Christ. In contrast, the weak will glory in wealth. Verse 12, the mature persevere in temptation. The weak will yield to temptation. Verse 19, the mature are quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The weak, the opposite. Verse 21, the mature will put off all evil. The weak will not. Also in verse 21, the mature will receive the word of God. The weak will not receive the word of God. Verse 22, the mature will do the word of God. The weak will not do the word of God. Verses 24 through 25, the mature will look to and remember the word of God. The weak will not. Verse 20, the mature are careful in speech. The weak are not careful in speech. Verse 27, the mature will help the needy. The weak will help themselves. In verse 27, the mature will remain unstained by the world, where the weak will become tainted by the world. If we were to continue, church, through all five chapters of James, we would be able to continuously see that theme uh, repeat over and over again. Each chapter and each section pivots the actions of the mature Christian against the actions of the weak Christian. This is the whole purpose of James' book, to display to the believer how they ought to respond in the various trials that they will endure in this life. It is the theme from verse 1, verse 2 of chapter 1, all the way through the end of chapter 5. And James presents a variety of topics related to suffering in his book and displays to the reader the contrast between the godly response and the sinful and or weak response. Therefore, it is essential to keep James's overall theme and structure in mind as we look to understand and apply the first few verses of his book. Verses that you likely are very familiar with, as I have Um, over the last couple of years, taught on verses that are very common, very familiar. And James 2, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, likely is one that you have heard before. And so James begins his book by telling his readers that regardless of what sort of trial they are going through, that the mature believers should count their experience as joyous. And so the title of the sermon today is to consider it joy when we face trials of many kinds. 
as joy is the first of many contrasts that James presents to us. And a few questions that should be asked in light of James's um, opening teachings to us are as follows. Number one, why should I consider my trials as joy? In reading these two verses, why? Why should I do that? And two, what is the opposite of joy? In other words, uh, what does it mean to not consider my trials as pure joy? Answering these two questions is essential for the reader to gauge the health of his or her faith as James presents somewhat of a Likert scale between the mature believer and the weak believer in his book. And so let's begin today by answering the second of these questions presented. What is the opposite of joy? Or in other words, what does it look like to not respond in joy? When I thought of this, I first thought, well, what are the antonyms of joy? The Greek word used for joy is one that is, uh, there, there's no special magic uh, interpretation of it. It's very similar to our understanding of joy. It's a very good, glad, um, reassuring, um, uh, all the things that we would think joy to be. So what is the antonym for the words joy? I found some good ones. Misery, despair, sadness, unhappiness, and wretchedness. Misery, despair, sadness, unhappiness, and wretchedness. And so if I were to insert some of these antonyms into the place of joy, we begin to get a better understanding of the paradoxical teaching that James is presenting to his readers. Listen carefully. Listen very carefully as I exchange the word joy out for some of its antonyms. Consider it pure misery, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure despair, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure sadness when you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure unhappiness when you face trials of many kinds. Or consider it pure wretchedness when you face trials of many kinds. But this is not what James teaches us. James says we are to, rather, consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. But if you think about it, church, aren't these antonyms exactly how the world responds to the trials of life? To be miserable, despondent, depressed, and unhappy in the midst of their trials? Worse yet, brothers and sisters, are not these antonyms how we God's people sometimes respond to the trials of our lives. I don't know about you, but as I have gone through an increased amount of trials in my life recently, I know that there have been times where the word joy seemed like a far-off and very non-existent category in my mind. Perhaps you can relate. But this is the exact point for why James writes his book, not to discourage us in our faith, but to encourage us by reminding us of the paradoxical nature of the Christian faith as we sojourn in this world. The kingdom of God is often presented to us in Scripture as this sort of Poseidian adventure. Some of the older people in this room are like, how does that guy know about that movie? Yeah, it's an old movie. You should watch it. And maybe I'll spur you on to watching it because if you're unfamiliar with the story, The Poseidian Adventure... 
Let me briefly outline, uh, outline it for you. There's a massive ship that's traveling in the ocean. There's all these different characters that are on board. And long story short, this ship, uh, the ship starts to, uh, it starts to sink. And as it sinks, it capsizes and it turns upside down. And the people that are inside, uh, through a variety of, uh, of different deductive reasoning and whatnot, are able to come to the conclusion that they are upside down and the only way to escape is to go opposite. They had to go to the bottom of the ship in order to get out. And there's a lot of fighting back and forth about um, which is the right way to go, but few people make it to the very end and make it to the bottom of the ship because they recognized that was the right side up and they were able to be rescued and saved. And so the entire time it is them going in the complete opposite direction that the rest of the people thought that they should go. Everything around them uh, looked as if you should walk up the stairs this direction and go this way, but by going the direction that the ship appeared, it would have taken them to certain death. And so they had to reverse that and go in the opposite direction. This uh, adventure story is very helpful in helping us paint the theme of James's epistle. Because the world says uh, that we are to go one direction in the midst of trials. And it looks that it makes all the sense in the world to be miserable and despondent and depressed in the midst of those things. But the word of God tells us to go in a much different direction. It tells us to go in a much different direction. This is exactly what James is painting for us. It looks as if you should go one direction, but the Word of God shows us that when we use more thought and application, primarily of His Word, we understand that it paints the right direction for us. And so with this overall structure, and now the theme of James being understood, at least partially understood, by the help of this Poseidon adventure story, we're going to take a closer look at verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1. Again, remember that James is contrasting the mature faith against the weak faith in order to spur the reader on in choosing the actions of the mature Christian. And by doing so, they're able to avoid the following sin. James tells his readers in verses 2 through 4, three things, three things that they will need to do in order to walk the mature path through the trials of life. He gives them three needs. He says, these are three things that you need to do. These three needs are, one, a need to consider. A need to consider, found in verse two. A need to consider. Two, a need to know. A need to know, verse three. And thirdly, a need to let. A need to let or to allow. A need to let, verse 4. These three needs will provide the outline as we now consider verses 2 through 4. And so our first is to consider our need to consider. Our need to consider. The phrase in verse 2, consider it, or in other translations, count it, best translates as you must consider. It is absolutely essential that you consider this. James begins by calling on believers to make a decisive personal choice about how they will respond in the face of trials. James presents the reader with their first quandary of the book. In trials, how will you choose to respond? 
God tells his people throughout Scripture many, many, many times to expect trials. And James does not say if you fall into various trials, but he says when you fall into various trials. The believer who expects his Christian life to be easy is in for a massive disappointment and a very rude awakening. Jesus warned his disciples that in this world we will have tribulation. John 16, 33. And Paul told his converts that, quote, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. And because we are God's scattered people, not God's sheltered people, we will certainly experience trials. Church, we are sojourning in this life. And we must remember weekly daily, hourly, that the end goal in this life is Christ's kingdom consummated. That is the goal. That does not mean that there is no good in this world, in this life. Praise the Lord, for there is an immense amount, an often abundant amount of good to be found in this world, especially for the people of God. But James reminds us to be diligent and proper in our theology, knowing what to expect in our wilderness wanderings, and knowing how we should, therefore, live. Trials of various kinds will come. Some due to our own sin, some because of the sin of others, and some because of no one's fault. But James's goal is not to attempt to explain the nature of our sufferings. Rather, it is to explain the outcome of our sufferings. The key word in verse 2 is to consider, to closely evaluate Paul uses this same term several times in Philippians chapter 3. When Paul became a Christian, he evaluated his life and set new goals and new priorities. Things that were once important to him became garbage in the light of his experiences with Christ. When we face the trials of life, we too must closely evaluate them in the light of what God is doing through us and for us. The book of James is presenting a theology of God's sovereignty to his readers. And brothers and sisters, we will often not know the why for our sufferings in this life. We will often not have that answer. We will not know why to very many things of the sufferings in this life. Scripture actually is pretty clear on that, on that point too. But James here reminds his readers that because of the sovereignty of God, we can know the what of our sufferings. We can know the what of the sufferings knowing that God is using them to mold us into his eternal children. This explains why the mature Christian can have a perspective of joy in the midst of trials. Not because the trial itself is joyful, but because he lives for the things that matter most. For even our Lord was able to endure the cross because of the, quote, joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12.2 In church, it is our values and our theology that determine our perceptions and considerations. Let me say that again. It is our values and our theology that determines our perceptions and our considerations. If we value comfort more than the refining character that God is producing, and if we have a poor theology that leads us to believe that suffering can be avoided in this life, then the trials that we experience will bring about, listen again to this list, misery, despair, 
sadness, unhappiness, and wretchedness. So when trials come, we need not be joyful. For, those, for, for who in their right mind would be joyful in the midst of death, disease, or destruction? Rather, James is telling his readers that they should give thanks to the Lord and consider their trials and tribulations as joy, for they know what their trials will produce. And how can a believer adopt such a joyful attitude in the midst of the trials of this life? He can do it because of what the believer knows to be true about his trials. Because of what the believer knows to be true about his trials. This brings us to James's second need. The need to know. The need to know. What is it? that we need to know as Christians, according to James. What is it we need to know? We need to know that we are able to, in the midst of our trials and tribulation, we need to know who Christ is in the midst of those. We must know the true person of Christ. That is what we must know. Again, James says in verse 3 that we need to know, we need to know these things. And to know Christ. Church, look for a moment at how Paul responds to his tribulation while being imprisoned. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, remembering that Paul was in prison when he wrote this book. This is what he writes. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What an amazing verse. It's unfortunate that it's so often taken out of context for people to, you know, they're going to take an exam and, you know, they have to write this down on their paper, you know. I suppose it applies in all circumstances, but the depth of what Paul was saying there in the most miserable of circumstances, he was applying exactly what James is telling us now, that he has learned the secret to be content in all circumstances. Paul understood what it meant to consider his circumstances as joy, for he knew what God was doing in them. You see, brothers and sisters, it is only in Christ that joy or contentment can be found in our trials. Only in Christ. Not because we are happy or joyful or untroubled with the reality of our circumstances, but because we know Christ and we know his plan. It is because of this that we can rest secure in the realities of our trials. For it is this knowledge, this knowledge, that brings us happiness, joy, and contentment. So what James is showing us, not just in verses 2 through 4, but throughout his entire book, is a measuring rod for the current level of our trust and our faith in Christ. Because in faith, in faith, we can consider our circumstances as joy, for we know that Christ is working through our trials. Listen for a moment at some following scriptures that relate to this teaching in James. And you'll see how prominent it is, not only throughout all the uh, scriptures, but especially in the New Testament. I'll give you the verse, and uh, if you want to try and speed uh, to it, you can, but uh, rest assured I'm reading them from the ESV, so it's okay. Um, 
I'm going to read Romans 8, 28 through 30, Romans 5, 3 through 5, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, and 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Listen carefully. Listen carefully as I read God's most holy word to you in regards to what James is teaching. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also, pre, uh, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. As Paul writes, Paul understood very clearly how God was using the process of this life, the difficulties in particular, to bring about Christ-likeness in all of us. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is a process that Paul lays out for us. Look at Romans 5, 3 through 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul again lays out earlier in the book of Romans this process, right? What is the purpose of life, church? I mean, maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've got a, a friend or something like that asking, what is the purpose of life? To go through trials and tribulations so that God can mold you, his children, into something of eternal value. There you go. You can share that with your friends. What is the purpose? To endure the trials and tribulations of this life so that we are made into something that is more than just the, the hay or stubble of this life. Something of eternal value. 1 Peter 1, 6-9 through 9 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that it is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is almost the, the exact teaching of what James is saying. That's why I'm trying to communicate. This is a, a, a teaching, a theme that is very prominent in the New Testament when you, link these, when you link these things together. But it's amazing. As a person who uh, a majority of my ministry is through pastoral counseling, it's amazing how many people say, why am I suffering? And I don't, I, I don't know, but I know what God is doing in the midst of it. It's the wrong question, right? What does God want me to do in the midst of, of, of my suffering? I know that that's what God wants us to look at because that's the answer he gives us in the scriptures. Very, very rarely does he ever say, this is why you're suffering, right? But he does say what he's doing in that suffering and why we should trust him. And we need to, we need to know the scriptures for that. We need to turn to the scriptures for that knowledge, that understanding. Last verse, 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18. So we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Right? That transformation, that, that, that uh, continual refining that James is talking about. Verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Church, let me put this need very, very succinctly. We need, we need to know the word of God and all that it teaches us about our salvation in Christ. We must, we must know the word of God at a depth and level that allows us to apply these things in the midst of suffering. Pastor Joe can take a tangent off of his manuscript. I can do it too. I've went through, most of you guys know who know me, I've went through my fair share of suffering recently. And it's interesting when you're going through life and you learn these things. It feels really good. And then somebody dies. And then somebody else, is, somebody else dies. And then somebody else dies. And then you're left. And each time that happens... You're put at a place where you ask yourself, do I really believe these things? Right? Maybe it's not proper to say it this way, but as I've talked to my wife about it, I kind of said it, it tests you from your youth group faith, right? So it separates the youth group faith from the adult faith. Youth group faith is real fun. You know, it's easy. feels real good when things are going your way. But as soon as those trials start to come, you're going to find out what sort of faith you have, what, what sort of faith you have. Your faith is going to be tested. And if we don't have the depth of God's word that's there, I've watched people. This, this is that refinement, right? This will, this will separate the people for whose faith is weak or people whose faith is non-existent, by the way. Because when those trials come, it's not so good to say how good the Lord is at that time. Unless you understand these teachings. If you don't understand these things... No wonder people run to so many places looking for answers. No, no wonder so many people run away from the church because they didn't have a deep enough understanding about the Christ, the true Christ of scriptures, to sustain them through their trials. But this is what James is telling us to know. He says that we know that the testing of our faith will produce steadfastness, and steadfastness will bring about Christ in us. But only in the word of God is this mystery known or understood. Brothers and sisters, where is your faith today? Take a moment to really think about that question in your mind. Is your faith strong today? Then I presume you spend much time in the word of God walking closely with Christ. Is your faith weak today? Then I would presume that the amount of time you spend reading the scriptures and communing with the Lord is likely very minimal. Be encouraged by the words of James, therefore, to know the scriptures at a deep level. For in knowing the scriptures, you will be taught the secret of how to be content in all circumstances and how to consider the trials of this life as joy. For church, our faith will be continuously tested in this life, which explains why studying the Bible helps us so much in uh, teaching us to grow in patience and perseverance. 
Because as we read the stories of Scripture, the stories of Abraham, of Joseph, of Moses, David, and even our Lord, we're reminded that God has a purpose in the trials of his people. God fulfills his purposes as we trust him, and the evil one cannot overcome the Christian who knows his Bible and understands the purposes of God. This brings us to James's final need that he presents to us, the need to let the need to let. James 1.4 states, And let steadfastness have its full effect, its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The term let is directly connected to the three indispensable godly qualities that follow. Maturity, completeness, and lacking in nothing. God often cannot build our character without our cooperation If we resist him, then he will chasten us into submission. But if we submit to him, then he can accomplish his most perfect will and work in our lives. For God is working a perfect work within us, a finished product that is mature, complete, and lacking in nothing. God's goal for our lives, church, is Christian maturity. It would be a tragedy if our children remained as infants. We enjoy watching them mature, Even though maturity brings dangers, it also brings delights. But many Christians shelter themselves and at times even shelter their children from the trials of life. And as a result, they, and sometimes their children, never grow up. But God builds character through our trials. And we must let, we must allow this process to take place. God cannot work in us if we do not allow the process to take place. There must be a surrendered will. The mature person does not argue with God's will. Instead, he accepts it willingly and obeys it through joyful consideration. If we try to go through the trials of this life without a surrendered will, we will end up more like immature children than mature adults. The story of Jonah is a very good illustration of this. God commanded Jonah to preach to the Gentiles in Nineveh, but Jonah refused. He fought against God. God chastened Jonah before the prophet accepted his commission, but Jonah did not obey God. In the last chapter of Jonah, we see the prophet being frustrated and angry with the will of God. I wonder if any of us have ever felt that way, being frustrated and angry with the will of God in our lives. But Jonah did not allow for the will of God. Instead, he fought against it and was punished for it. Church, look back at the trials of your life. For this was the Lord's will for you. Not that God caused every trial and tribulation in your life. Rather, God used all that you had endured for his eternal and perfect purpose. The mature believer is able to look back and see the work of God. In turn, giving to the believer patience and perseverance as he allows God to work his most perfect will in his life. For God uses trials to wean us away from childish things. But if we do not surrender to him, we will become even more immature and worse off. This is what leads us to the central point and the conclusion of James's three needs. What is the so what of these three needs? What does it lead up to? It leads up to this, verse 4, so that we may 
that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Completion or maturity does not mean that we will be faultless or even flawless. Rather, we will experience the reality that life's trials help us to reach a level of maturity that we would not otherwise attain. Verse 4 concludes with the, fr- with the phrase, lacking in nothing. Notice again that the mature Christian is described in verse 4 in three ways. Perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. That is God's will for you, brothers and sisters, that you would be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Trials are God's means of producing maturity and perfecting the believer. One day, brothers and sisters, the tears of this life will be wiped away. Sorrow will dissolve. Death itself will finally and forever be crushed. And the Bible constantly warns us not to become so focused on this life that we fail to look beyond the life to come. That forward look that the marvelous ability to transform the sufferings of this present time into a joyful perspective as we view our trials in light of glory. Therefore, as we dwell on the glory to be revealed, we begin finding ourselves saying with the Apostle Paul, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8, 18. So we must never forget why it is that we are able to consider, why it is we're able to consider our trials as joy. For we know that through Christ, in Christ alone, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 As I conclude, I would like to make three brief and clarifying points of application from James 1, 2 through 4. Point number one, James provides for us a mindset, not an emotion. James provides for us a mindset, not an emotion. Very, very important. James tells us to consider it joy, not be joyful. Very big difference when we face trials of various kinds. Again, this is absolutely essential in understanding and applying the scripture and its theology. James is urging his readers to count it all joy, to count it all joy when they fall into various trials. He wasn't suggesting that they greet every difficulty that came their way by exclaiming, wow, another difficult trial. Isn't this just great? This is not what he's saying at all. Christians are not to pretend the sufferings of this life are not real and are not painful. They are rather to find joy in the midst of their sufferings, and they do so because they understand the biblical theology of suffering. And it is a very deep and robust theology that exists in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, we will go through great trials in this life. Many of us are enduring immense trials even as I speak. But we have the hope of Christ. We do not suffer as the world suffers. We're reminded by the scriptures that Christ came into this world, suffered, and has overcome this world. And we know that he is using our experiences in this life to conform us more and more into his image. So as you endure, as you endure, brothers and sisters, as you continue to endure, 
Whereas you one day will endure trials in this life. Be reminded of the promises of God. For it is because of his promises that we can consider our trials as joy. This brings me to my second point of application. That trials of various kinds means trials of various kinds. Trials of various kinds means trials of various kinds. Church, is your faith being tested today? Then you are facing a trial of various kinds. Are you hurting? Are you doubting? Are you grieving? Then you are facing a trial of various kinds. No trial is too great or too small for God to work in our lives. It is important to remember that because it is easy to read this scripture and to think that your experience is perhaps too small or too great to apply James's teaching. But James tells us that our trials will test our faith. And this is the requirement to be considered a various trial. If it tests your faith, it meets the requirements of being a various trial. Is God being silent in your life? Are you not happy with the circumstances that God has brought into your life? Are you waiting for God to move, yet he remains still? Brothers and sisters, if you are struggling with trusting in the words and promises of God, take heart. For James is speaking to those whose faith is struggling. And his command to the reader is to stop. To stop. To reflect. And remember the promises of God. And as we sojourn in this life, various trials will come in waves. James tells us to be reminded of God's promises and to be patient in our sufferings, for this is God's will for his people. This brings me to my third and final point of application, that God uses our trials to mold us into his eternal children. That God uses our trials to mold us into his eternal children. Church, God is near. He is not far away. He is walking intimately with us through our trials, through our sorrows, and through our tribulations. And God is concerned with the details, even the minute ones, of our lives. As Matthew reminds us in chapter 6, verse 26 of his gospel, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? If our heavenly Father and our, if our heavenly providentially Father cares for us and cares for the needs of a bird, how much more will he care for us? Our Heavenly Father sees all that we endure in this life. And He cares for us. He sustains us. And most importantly, through our struggles, through our pain, through our sorrow, and through our difficulties, He transforms us into His perfect covenant and eternal children. In closing, I would like to read a small portion of a very well-known scripture uh, well-known scripture passage from the story of Joseph. You're probably familiar with the life of Joseph, and his life was a beautiful display of someone who endured great trials and tribulations, yet was able to consider them as joy 
For he knew, he knew the sovereign hand of God was over him. Look carefully at the closing verses of Genesis 50, where Jacob had now passed away, and Joseph was left once again alone with his brothers. Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21 state, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying this, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin. For they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke this to him. Quick pause here in this point of the story, church. Joseph had a choice. His father was gone, right? Sometimes when father's around, you've got to hold it together, right? There's that image that's there. But there was nothing. Joseph was king of the land. His father was gone, right? The only person Joseph now had above him was God himself. He had a choice, a decision to choose how he would respond to his brothers in actions. And if anybody had older brothers, and I understand having older brothers that have it out for you, Joseph understood. Murder, conniving, selling, just the worst of the worst. Verse 18. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. They've been quite humbled, his brothers. But listen carefully to the response of Joseph. Verse 19, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore... Do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Brothers and sisters, may we be like Joseph when it comes to facing trials of many kinds. For we know that the testing of our faith brings about God's most perfect will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that are within them. Help us, your people, to know your word, to read it more often, to study it, to constantly feast upon it, Lord. For it is only in and through your word, Father, that you have provided us that we're able to bring about this mindset that James calls us to. Comfort those who are hurting today. Encourage those who need encouragement. Direct those who need direction. Sustain us all. Care for us all as your people. It's the name of Christ we pray. Amen.